Welcome to Moving the Needle, a podcast exploring some of the most pressing and urgent issues facing Canada and indeed the world. I am joined by my Director of Parliamentary Affairs, Paul Fawcett, who will help move this podcast forward. I'm really excited about this new project because we will discuss and highlight issues that may not always make it into the headlines of the newspapers or even your social media news feeds, but still are issues that affect people's lives on a daily basis. Issues like corruption, modern slavery, charities, diversity, pluralism, anti-racism, these will all be featured in our upcoming episodes. We will feature guests whose actions and ideas are transforming our society. These are the change makers amongst us. And through this discussion and debate, we hope we can move the needle on these pernicious plagues on our society. Senator, I'm really happy to be joining you on this podcast. I'm really happy to be, you know, have an opportunity to talk and discuss and, and get in depth with the change makers that are really transforming our society. They're not only transforming their own communities, but transforming uh, you know, country after country and changing the world. And I think there's a lot of actions that they do that we can learn from and, and use either here in Canada or in other parts of the world to really make change in our community. So I think it's a great way to, to start the podcast. So I think we should get started. Okay, let's get to it. Our first conversation is all about corruption. Corruption is a huge industry in the world. The World Bank has estimated there are roughly $40 billion of corrupt money floating around the world. And whilst the corrupt money is floating around the world, the citizens of the countries where the corruption has occurred often face persecution, human rights abuses. They are pushed out of their homes as refugees or internally displaced people, places like Venezuela, who have created a refugee calamity, or the genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar, perpetrated by the military, which has created mass force displacement. These corrupt leaders bring pain and anguish to their citizens. But in the process, they enrich themselves. They hide, cheat and steal from their country and park that money in bank accounts all over the world. And they park these, this money in safe jurisdictions because one thing we know, corrupt people want their money to be in jurisdictions where they are not where the money is not going to get corrupted. They live the high life while their citizens are treated as less than human. This needs to change. We need to hold these corrupt leaders to account and bring them to justice. But we also need to make them pay and give back the money that they have stolen to the people they have harmed. That is what I intended when I introduced a bill in the Senate called the Foreign Assets Repurposing Act, or FARA for short. It's an idea that has come out of the work of the World Refugee and Migration Council, but could be a tool that Canada and other countries should implement. It would, through court order, repurpose the stolen assets of corrupt of foreign officials in Canadian banks and give them back in different ways to the people harmed including those who are refugees and displaced. Our government has committed to bringing their own legislation forward 
but has yet to do so. In the meantime, the clock is ticking. Well, we have a great guest today, Senator, obviously, and that will be, uh, you know, world-renowned activist Bill Browder. So let's go to the interview. Terrific. I'm doing great and I'm really, really excited to uh, uh, talk to an outstanding changemaker, fighter uh, in the world, because today we're talking about corruption. And when you talk about corruption, somehow Bill Browder's name comes up. Uh, he is best known for his campaign to uh, urge nation states to adopt the Magnitsky Law, uh, which, uh, which targets uh, human rights abusers and political uh, leaders who engage in corruption. This is a personal quest for Bill Browder because Serge Magnitsky was in fact his lawyer who was tortured uh, by in prison by the Russian government and eventually died in 2009. Um, Bill Browder has uh, has pushed the Magnitsky Act uh, in various jurisdictions. The United States was the first to adopt such juristic such uh, legislation, which not only freezes the assets of the corrupt leader but also prevents their in entry into the U.S. Um, Canada followed suit uh, a few years later and now other nations including the EU uh, is lining up to adopt various interpretations of what we popularly call the Magnitsky law. It is indeed a great honor and a privilege for me to speak to a change maker like you who's moving many many needles. But let me start off with the personal in this. Uh, you have detailed it in this wonderful book, Red Notice, and thank you for your signed copy. I couldn't put it down. I frankly couldn't put it down. Just sort of in a nutshell, tell our audience, uh, what happened to you and Mr. Magnitsky, and why did you start a campaign to hold corrupt officials to account? Um, well, um, thank you, and th thank you for inviting me on, on this um, on this show, um, and great to see you. Um, so, so my story is is a, uh, a very unusual story. Um, so I should probably go back to the beginning. If, first of all, you hear my accent. It's an accent from the United States. I was born in Princeton, New Jersey. I grew up in Chicago, but I come from a very unusual American family. My grandfather was the uh, head of the American Communist Party from 1932 <laughs> to 1945. And so when I was going through my teenage rebellion, um, I thought the best way to rebel from this family of communists was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And so that's what I did. I went to Stanford Business School. I graduated business school in 1989, which was the year the Berlin Wall came down. And um, as I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I thought, wouldn't it be the perfect irony that my grandfather was the biggest communist in America? The Berlin Wall has just come down. And I became the biggest capitalist in Russia. And that's what I set out to do. And, and I achieved it, actually, believe it or not. Uh, I went to Russia. I set up an investment fund. And I ended up becoming the largest foreign investor in Russia. I had this fund called the Hermitage Fund. We had $4.5 billion under management. But the problem was that all the companies that I was investing in were effectively being robbed blind by these people known as the Russian oligarchs. 
They were stealing money out the front door and the back door and the side door. They were doing asset stripping and transfer pricing and embezzlement and dilutions. And I decided <clears throat> from a business perspective that this was really terrible and it was also morally terrible that these people were doing this. And, and so I started to challenge them by researching how they did the stealing and then sharing that research with the international media. And for a while, when I was doing the, this, what I call naming and shaming, it was at a time when Vladimir Putin had just come to power. And interestingly, when Vladimir Putin was first president, he wasn't the way he is now. He was very sort of what I would call tentative and underconfident. Huh. And the reason he was, was because the power of the presidency had been usurped by these oligarchs. These people had effectively privatized the power of the presidency. And so Putin wanted to regain the power of the presidency. And as I was starting to expose these oligarchs for their stealing of money, he was then jumping on, on top of these campaigns that I was doing to effectively punish his enemies. There's an expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And so for a period of time, Putin was, was um, uh, using my uh, campaigns as a pretext to go after his enemies. And it had the very unexpected but positive effect of pushing up the value of my portfolio very dramatically. And so for a while, it was all very great for me. I was uh, cleaning up Russia. I was getting the bad guys. The value of my portfolio was rising. And I was thinking, Putin, he's a pretty good guy. I mean, look, he's, cra he's cracking down on corruption. Well, it turned out that Putin's um, crackdown on corruption was short-lived and uh, effectively uh, pragmatic and transactional. And in 2000, late 2003, he decided to win his war with the oligarchs. And the way he did that was by arresting the richest oligarch in Russia, Mikhail Hordakovsky. Uh, yeah, yeah. Mm. He puts him on trial. The it allows the television cameras to film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And um, all of a sudden, the other oligarchs come to him and say, what do we have to do so we don't sit in the cage, Vladimir? And he said 50%. Uh -huh. And at that moment, Vladimir Putin became the richest man in the world. And at that moment, all of my campaigns were no longer in his interest, but against his own financial interests because he was business partners with these guys. And things then deteriorated very quickly. I was expelled from Russia. I was declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided. The police seized all of our corporate documents. And at that point, I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to help me investigate. It was, so Sergei discovered that there was a $230 million tax rebate fraud of taxes that we had paid to the Russian government had been stolen from the Russian government. It was the largest tax refund fraud in the history of Russia. And Sergei uh, testified against the officials involved, including the police officers who conducted the raid. And we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. But it turns out that in, in Putin's uh, government, there are no good guys. And instead of arresting the people who conducted the, perpetrated the tax fraud, uh, they arrested Sergei Magnitsky. They arrested him. He was put in pretrial detention where he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. Um, they put him in cells, they, cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. 
And the purpose of all this was to try to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt officers and to get him um, to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and he did so on my instruction. And Sergei was a man of such integrity and principle that for him, the idea of, of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more painful than the physical pain they were subjecting him to, and he refused. And so as a result, they just escalated the torture and the pressure. It got worse and worse and worse. And after about six months, he um, developed terrible pains in his stomach. He ended up losing 20 kilos and he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, which was scheduled um, uh, for the 1st of August, 2009. A week before the operation, he was um, again approached to sign this false confession. Again, he refused. In retaliation, they moved him from, uh, uh, from the prison that had a medical wing to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, a prison considered to be one of the toughest and worst prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, they had no medical facilities there. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He went into a terrible downward spiral. He was in constant agonizing pain. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests for medical attention to every different branch of the criminal justice system. And every different branch of the criminal justice system either ignored or denied in writing his, his desperate requests for medical attention. On the night of November 16th, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition. On that night, the Russian authorities or the Butyrka authorities didn't wanna have responsibility for him anymore. They put him in an ambulance and sent him, to, sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. But when he arrived there, he was, um, uh, instead of being put in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died. That was November 16, 2009. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. Bill, that is a chilling story. I can hear the grief, the despair, but also the anger in your voice. And I think from that comes your steely determination to go after corruption. The World Bank has estimated we know the figures, 20 to $40 billion worth of corrupt money floating around. And corrupt people exist everywhere, everywhere in the world. Um, so why is it important, you think, to go after the money? And can you describe to me the impact this legislation, where it has been applied on individuals? What impact has that, has that had on their lives? How have their lives been made difficult and how are they being held to account? Well, so after Sergei died, I was so heartbroken, I was so upset, I was so angry um, that I had to put aside everything else I was doing. And I became, and I focused exclusively um, on going after the people who killed him to make sure they faced justice. And at first we tried to get justice inside of Russia. The, the Sergei had documented everything that had to ha happen to him. And so there, I thought we could get justice inside of Russia, but it turned out that that they had circled the wagons. Putin, Putin and his people had circled the wagons. Putin got involved uh, personally in exonerating everybody who played a role in Sergei's false arrest, torture, and death. And um, and it became obvious. And he and, and he gave um, promotions and state honors to some of the people who were most complicit. And so it became obvious to me that we were never going to get justice inside of Russia. And so then I said to myself, How do we get justice outside of Russia? And at the time, there, there really were no 
proper mechanisms for getting justice. Uh, the International Criminal Court, you have to have 100,000 murders. You can't just have one murder. Uh, the European Court for Human Rights, uh, they don't issue verdicts against individuals or, or have custodial sentences. It's only that they, they, they issue um, claims against the countries that, that have done terrible mm -hmm. things. Yep. Uh, universal jurisdiction, which is a legal concept, doesn't really work. There's no, I've never seen it properly prosecuted. And I wasn't willing to accept the fact that there was no legal instrument to get redress in this situation. And I said to myself, if, if, if there's nothing that exists on the, on the books, then we need to create something. And then the question is, what can we create? And I looked at the crime that Sergei Magnitsky was killed over. He was killed over the theft of, of exposing the, the theft of $230 million. And the people who stole that money don't keep it in Russia. They keep it in New York and Geneva and London and Toronto. And I said to myself, we might not be able to get them for torture and murder uh, in the okay. West, but we can certainly freeze their assets and ban their visas. And I originally took this idea uh, to a Democratic senator from Maryland, Benjamin Cardin, and a Republican senator from Arizona, John McCain. And I said, I told him the story that I just shared with you. And I said, can, can we freeze the assets and ban the visas of these people? And they said, yes. And that became known as the Magnitsky Act. And it was originally uh, just a piece of legislation for Russia. And it, and it sailed through the legislative process in two years. We went from start to finish. And by 2012, it passed the Senate 92 to 4. It passed the House of Representatives with 89%. And it became a federal law on December 14, 2012. And Vladimir Putin went out of his mind when it was passed. No one's ever like held him to account for anything. And all of a sudden, we've got this law to hold him and his cronies to account. And more, moreover, we're going after what they care about most. Their money. These people kill for money. They killed Sergei Magnitsky for money. They kill lots of other people for money. And all of a sudden, they're, so they're valuing money more than human life. And all of a sudden, we're about to take their money away from them. And it had a profound effect. Putin retaliated by banning the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. Ah, yes. Um, Putin made it his single largest foreign policy priority to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And and it didn't have the desired effect. The people in my my uh, friends and colleagues uh, in America and the Senate and the House of Representatives, um, they said, "Well, if if um, Putin is so mad about this, I bet you some other dictators would be equally mad." And so they then said, "Create the Global Magnitsky Act," yeah. and the Global Magnitsky Act, which goes after bad guys everywhere in the Correct. world. Uh -huh. Uh, passed the Senate and the House of Representatives and became a federal law in December of 2016. And from there, um, we now have, right after that, the, the Estonian government passed an Estonian Magnitsky Act. And then you in Canada passed a, a uh, Canadian Magnitsky Act unanimously in both chambers of parliament. Uh, Estonia, uh, so Latvia, Lithuania passed Magnitsky Acts. The UK passed a Magnitsky Act. Um, Kosovo passed the Magnitsky Act, and as you mentioned, the European Union is now on deck. Australia is now on deck. Uh, Switzerland has a legislative proposal in the process. Norway has a legislative proposal in the process. Ukraine has a legislative proposal, and so we're we're um, we're, we're basically scouring the world, making sure that this legislation exists everywhere.
and it truly upsets the bad guys because they all they all want to they they love committing their crimes in their home country which are lawless but they they want to have all their money and their families and their girlfriends and their bank accounts and their villas and in their safe yachts. places yeah they they want to have they they want to like uh, take advantage of lawlessness and then they want to take advantage of lawfulness and and uh and that's why they come to our countries and that's why we have this leverage to really cause them trouble and so the magnitsky act is really really hated when by all these dictators because it, it's targeted it's not it's not a piece of legislation that goes after the people of the country it goes after the specific uh um, human rights violators and kleptocrats and that's very powerful uh, so one of the criticisms i have heard it's not a criticism it's a question uh, does the magnitsky act just simply not succeed in closing off a few markets but leaving others open. So the so the corruptors take their money from Canada and they put it, let's say, in Italy. What what's your response to that? Uh, they're, they're absolutely right. That 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 is a huge um, problem, which is why um, I continue to work on getting the. It, so not people are not are not going to take their money from Canada and stick it to Zambia. Okay, <laughs> they're not going to yeah. take their money and stick it in, in Indonesia because those are places where it could be stolen from them. They, they want to have rule of law countries. And so all we need to do is get the rule of law countries. We don't have to have the entire United Nations doing this. We just need the good countries where people want to uh, have their money safe. And so we're almost there. If we get the EU, oh, we also have a Japanese legislative proposal. We get the EU, Japan, um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Switzerland, Norway. We, we pretty much got the world. I mean, at, at that point, there's not very many places that, that these guys can keep their money safely. They can keep it unsafely, but that's the whole point is they want to, they, they, they don't want it to be in an unsafe place where they can be the victims of fraud like, like they had been the perpetrators of fraud. Right. That's, that's, an, in, that's an interesting uh, uh, response, so I will keep that in mind. Now, it's really wonderful that the act is, you know, it's, it, it's a great idea. It has very, very long legs and it's sprinting across the world. If you were the Attorney General of the U.S. or Canada or any of the other ju jurisdictions, who would you have in your line of sight for sanctioning? Oh my God, I, I have so many people in my line of sight. So the, the very, very top of my list right now mm -hmm. are, are the um, Chinese officials involved mm -hmm. in the genocide of the Uyghurs. Uh, this is a story which I've been following closely for the last couple of years. And I'm, I'm in shock that mm -hmm. today, right now, as we speak, um, China is perpetrating a genocide against a, a, a minority religious population. And, and I don't use those words lightly. There's a genocide. There's concentration camps. They're, they're trying to destroy these people. They're killing them. They're raping them. They're imprisoning them. Slave labor, forced sterilization. It's just unbelievable what they're doing. And that uh, you know, we we said never again after after the Holocaust, and there's been a few more Holocausts since then, and it's now happening under our nose right now. And and uh, it may not stop the genocide, but it sure creates a, a, a something of a counterbalance if we go after the individuals who are responsible for perpetrating this genocide. 
So uh, Canada has the Magnitsky legislation and there have been calls on Canada to apply it uh, to the two individuals in China um, in response to, you know, what you have called the genocide of the Uyghurs. Um, Canada-China relations are at a very complex stage here. We have, as you know, two Canadians in prison. Uh, we have, uh, you know, we're an export country. Our economic well-being in some great part derives from our from normalized trading relations with China. I believe you made a presentation to the Canadian government, uh, either in a committee or something. Have you had a response? Is, is there a response from the Canadian government on applying Magnitsky legislation to officials in China? No, the Canadian government has been very sort of, uh, of deftly avoiding the question. And, um, and I think that the Canadian government should absolutely uh, step in and do the right thing here. It, the, the, the beauty of the Magnitsky legislation is that it doesn't cause uh, ruptures in trade relations or diplomatic relations. It's, it targets very narrowly the people who have done terrible things where they weren't being penalized by their country. And, and so I don't see the, the um, reason why Canada hasn't done it. The United States has done it. Mm. And uh, I'm pretty disappointed that Canada hasn't done it because Canada has the tool there. And Canada is supposed to be this, this great sort of moral beacon. And it hasn't felt that way recently in terms of in terms of this uh, in terms of this legislation in terms of a lot of these terrible atrocities. It's it's um, and and I and I am appalled and outraged that there are two hostages from Canada and yeah. China. But you can't base the entire country's foreign policy on hostage taking. If you do, then then that, that gives an incentive to every country in the mm -hmm. world to take more hostages mm -hmm. from Canada. Okay, I. I I hope this this message will resonate in Parliament when we reconvene. I, I had a question about the lists and the of the assets. So you know, assets are frozen. Names are public. The names of those who are sanctioned in our country are public. I'm not sure about the others. It would be wonderful to get a a global list together as opposed to individual state lists. But one of my questions is around the value of the assets. There is actually very, no transparency that I can see, at least in our country, whether assets themselves are listed. Can you uh, tell us about uh, whether, in fact, this list of assets exists anywhere? And if not, why not? And what can we do to bring more transparency to these, uh, to the corruption and the misery that these kleptocrats uh, have created for millions of people in the world? Well, um, it's a really good question. So the assets, <clears throat> so in, in my opinion, and, and I think this is borne out in reality, very few um, assets have been frozen, if any, under the Magnitsky Act anywhere. And and so you can say, well, that's that's really terrible. That means it's not effective. But But the answer is that's not true at all, because the real power of the Magnitsky Act is not in the assets that are frozen. Of course, if somebody has like huge mansions and and bank accounts in, in Canadian banks or, or uh, you know, mansions in Manhattan or wherever, that, that, that would be helpful. But um, the value of the Magnitsky Act comes from something different, which is that the moment that anybody gets added to a sanctions list from a civilized country, 
there are computer programs that monitor that and and they and those uh, computer programs or or software are sold to banks all over to every bank in the world every bank in the world subscribes to one of these monitoring services uh, one of them is called world check i think it's a division of thomson reuters and <clears throat> the moment that the bank gets an gets an indication that somebody is on a sanctions list what does the bank do they close their account immediately and and i'm not just talking so it's not just like a canadian bank closing a canadian account because of a canadian sanctions list if somebody is sanctioned by canada then a bank in Dubai will close the account or a bank in South Africa will close the account or a bank anywhere will close the account because no banks want to be doing business with people who are on sanctions lists. They, in, the, in the worst case, um, these banks end up getting fined by either the United States or European Union or maybe even Canada. Um, but even if they don't get fined, they, they, they still don't want to have the reputation of being uh, uh, crooked banks doing business with sanctioned individuals. They can have compliance departments to stop them from that. So, so, so you're, you're suggesting list or no list, financial markets are closed to them. Immediately closed. And and they, they can't go to bank anywhere. And okay. they can't do business with anybody, any multinational person anywhere. They can't have a credit card. They can't get visas anymore because the the consular officers do a quick search on, on Google and find out, hey, they're on the, they're on the, Canadian Magnitsky list, and we're not going to give them a visa. It's our choice not to or, or not to, even if it has nothing to do with Canada. Um, and so you end up with a with a person whose life gets destroyed. I mean, it's it's devastating to be um, sanctioned under the yeah. uh, the Magnitsky Act, and that's the real power of the whole thing. Now, of course, it'd be great to to find their villas and freeze those their villas, and and as more great countries, big countries start doing the Magnitsky Act, the more likely it is that we'll actually start getting assets. But in the meantime, uh, it, it's a terrible um, detriment to anybody to be added to the Magnitsky list. That's, that's actually a very interesting way of looking at it. So you know, uh, Bill, that I'm a huge fan of your legislation. And you know, I think of you as uh, someone who has helped the world not just you know, aspire uh, to something, but actually uh, act on it. Um, so I've taken your bill and I've taken it to a slightly different place and I introduced it in the Senate last year. It has now um, uh, been adopted by our Liberal uh, government as a promise to deliver on. We're in prorogation, so we don't know whether that promise will reappear in the next mandate letter. I'm certainly hoping it will. And it is this, uh, that once someone is on the sanctioned list, Canada's Attorney General will have the power to institute a court case through the courts and not just and go beyond seizing uh, to uh, go beyond freezing to seizing the assets and then through uh, processes uh, return the corrupt money back to the people of that country. Those people may be in the country or they may be outside the country. As we well know, uh, there are a number of names on Canada's Magnitsky list from Myanmar, from South Sudan, yeah. from Venezuela, who have created mass forced displacement and misery uh, for millions of people for at least one decade, if not two. 
and, and they are hosted in countries like Bangladesh or Kenya or Colombia, countries themselves who are not able to meet the needs of refugees or displaced people in the way that perhaps they should, but they simply don't have the money. So here's a way of getting the people of the country their money back or some aspects of it. Uh, and this is not just about corruption, it's about human rights abuses. So we are linking the two. Yeah. Uh, can you respond to this proposal? Do you think it's it's doable? Well, I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know, uh, I mean, it's like truth and beauty. I mean, what could be better? Not, not just punishing the people, but, but um, uh, you know, getting monetary compensation for the victims. How could, anyone who's for the Magnitsky Act has to be for your legislation. I think it's, um, uh, it, it, it's, it, it's truly beautiful, but, but I think that there'll be big problems in getting the government to actually implement it. If you, if you get this law passed, I've seen governments and governments just don't want to go to courts. They don't, they're just lazy. They, they, they don't want to lose, they, they don't want to be in an adversarial situation. And so, I can imagine that um, it, half the battle will be getting the law passed, and then the other half the battle, which will take a lot, a lot of time, will be to get it implemented. But um, I support it wholeheartedly. And and uh, if there's ways of making it um, harder for the government to um, ignore or not implement, then that would be something really great. So I will, you know, you. It you took two years in the U.S. You were talking earlier about passing the Magnitsky Act. Uh, two years is, is in political times, a long time. Anything can happen. So I will certainly be, you know, getting back to you with whatever advice you can give me as I try and take this act from starting line to finish line. But there is, you know, as people say, corruption is requires many instruments many strategies to address it so now there is a proposal from the world refugee and migration council of which i'm a i'm a i'm a member from lloyd axworthy judge mark wolf and others to create an international anti-corruption court and this anti-corruption court uh would would come into play when uh, uh the country where this corruption has happened is, is unable or unwilling to prosecute the corrupt leaders themselves. Do you think these various iterations of anti-corruption efforts can make up more uh, than the ind individual parts of our efforts? Well, again, it's, it's a beautiful idea. I mean, who, who could be against uh, uh, an anti-corruption court to like prosecute bad guys when, when the, the domestic courts fail? Uh, the, the, the uh, I guess my, my um, again, it's an implementation problem. So which countries are members and which countries are not? Um, and so if you have, well, you know, you look at the United Nations, great idea. The United Nations, um, you know, all countries should like band together to prevent future wars. And then as time goes on, you end up with like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, um, and Angola on the Human Rights Council. <laughs> So is is Russia you know Russia is Russia going to be um, uh, a member of this court? Uh, are they going to provide uh, judges to the court? And if they do, will it, uh, I can tell you that they're not going to be honest judges. Um, so what do you do? I mean, so so they're, they're, it, it, when you start get gathering together all countries as opposed to um, the good ones, 
um, you end up with all sorts of problems. I mean, look at my own situation with Interpol. Okay, Interpol is one of these organizations where everyone is a member of Interpol. And, and so what happens with Interpol, Russia doesn't like me because they don't like the Magnitsky Act. And so what do they do? They open up a criminal case against me and, and issue an Interpol red notice for me. Interpol is supposed to be ch ch chasing criminals, not having criminals chase anti-corruption activists. <laughs> and so I think that, that um, uh, you know, anytime you involve all the countries of the world, you end up with um, some real bad stuff. And so maybe this anti-corruption court can exist with the good countries. I don't know, but th that that would be my my big. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. And I think I think that's actually one of the the things that was the beauty of the Magnitsky Act, and also even with Senator Omidvar's bill, is that you have a situation where countries can do it themselves. The you know it's not reliant on on international orders or not reliant on international courts, which are important mechanisms for for things to be able to move forward. The International Court of Justice, the war crimes, all that sort of stuff is there is a place for all of those. But Magnitsky and and the Foreign Assets Repurposing Act can make Canada do it on its own and move forward on its own to be able to. And now, Canada, it's interesting that you mentioned about implementation. Um, you know, we had heard anecdotally that. Uh, uh, you know, there was there was some concern a little bit about, you know, from the foreign policy establishment about Magnitsky, right, about what's this new instrument that we are going to use and what they found. And so there was a little bit of a roadblock and it was difficult to get it passed with the foreign policy establishment. But once it was passed, they have used it very effectively here in Canada to, up, uh, you know, over 70 names now on the list. And they use it because they can, as you said, once at one point is that you can target individuals, but still have foreign policy objectives yeah. with that country. Yeah. And it yeah. allows for essentially two tracks of diplomacy to happen. Yeah, well, I, I think that the, um, the, the, the beauty of, of the um, Repurposing Act is, is clear. And, and, um, and if you can get the government to do that, and if you can find assets, there's nothing better than, than um, uh, I mean, to, to give people uh, redress for their, for, for their um, you know, from the perpetrators is just amazing. I mean, that would be unbelievable if you can, if you can get that done. And, and there's always been the question, what happens to the assets after they're frozen? And so you've answered that question. So when I've spoken to, uh, you know, global leaders about about the Repurposing Act, one of the questions that gets gets put to me, primarily from uh, leaders, uh, diplomats, uh, policy activists from the Global South is, this is a very good idea, Senator, but it does smack a bit of colonialism and white saviorism. In the context of this the, the narrative in the world around anti-racism, etc. Uh, I wonder if you can help me with a comeback. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, it's it strikes me as as um, so so the, the obvious comeback is so. What, what would you prefer that victims don't get any money? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward. So you you found some perpetrators who've done something horrible. You've frozen those assets. And you have a group of victims that have had family members killed, tortured, whatever. Should you or should you not um, uh, take the money from the perpetrators and give them to the victims? And that's just justice. It has nothing to do with um, colonialism or anything else. It just has to do with simple fairness. And justice overpowers all those concepts as far as I can see. Let's get back to Russia. 
where your story started. Things are, 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 are tense in Russia, recent events, the alleged poisoning of Alexei Navalny. I know you are very concerned about this. Can you provide our listeners with some insight into the story? Alexei Navalny is the most popular politician in Russia. They say Putin has an 80% approval rate. It's just not true. If Alexei Navalny were running for president and there were a free and fair competition, Alexei Navalny would be the president of Russia. He's that popular. He's young, he's charismatic, he's dynamic. He's, he's got a huge following of people. And the most important thing is that in a country as corrupt as Russia, he's the anti-corruption mm-hmm. uh, activist. He's the one who's exposed all the corruption. That is something that scares Putin tremendously. But Putin, who, who regularly kills his enemies, has been afraid of going after Navalny because he understands that Alexei is so popular that if he does something, there's really a lot of uncertainty and downside. Now, at the same time, uh, Putin has been running his dictatorship for now 20, 21 years. And that, that's hard to hold together. And the, the longer it goes on for, the more uncertain it is, and the more he's got to be keeping, uh, tightening the screws and so on. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, his neighboring country, Belarus, is on fire, where, where another dictator, a 26-year di- dictator, Lukashenko, falsified the election and the people weren't willing to accept it. Accept it. And as a result of that, they're, uh, they're on, there's a general strike going on. There's people in the streets of every, in every town in Belarus. And it looks, it's hard, to, it's hard to know how it's gonna resolve, but Putin is looking at this and saying, if this succeeds, this, this creates an existential risk for, for me. And so Putin is saying to himself, um, if, if it, and this is, by the way, not, this is not like the Arab Spring. When the Arab Spring was going on, Putin wasn't afraid of it jumping the borders and coming to Russia because it was so far away in a different culture with a different set of issues. But this is Russia's neighbors. These are the same types of people completely. And if the Belarusians can get away with it, the Russians are going to want to get away with it. They're going to want to overthrow their dictator. And who's going to lead that process to overthrow the dictator? Alexei Navalny. And so Putin. I believe, has poisoned Alexei Navalny uh, because he's so scared of Navalny leading the uprising in Russia. Mm. We're all going to be watching this with great interest. Getting back to you, Bill, this whole quest, this this passion that you have, you display uh, on, started with your lawyer, Serge Magnitsky, has brought you in the last 10 years to a whole different life. It has not come without its without a personal cost to you. You talked about Interpol. Your, you know, Russia continues to agitate to put you on the list. Can you describe the impact on your life? Well, um, Putin has de- declared the Magnitsky Act his, uh, his single largest foreign policy priority to try to repeal and stop it from spreading. And He's defined me as his number one foreign enemy. And, and in that um, situation, I've been threatened with death, with kidnapping, 
with arrest, eight Interpol red notices, the extradition, they've applied for extradition numerous occasions from the British government. I've been sentenced in absentia to 18 years in, in uh, hard labor in Russian prison camp. That uh, They uh, follow me around, they make movies about me, they sue me. And um, so my life has turned completely upside down by this over a long period of time. Having said that, I, I'm not moderating my behavior. I'm not um, in any way trying to negotiate a settlement. There is no settlement to, to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky. And I will carry on doing this with the risks that I have to face, uh, understanding that it may all end tra tragically. But, but for me, the idea of not carrying on would be too painful for me to even consider. And it's my duty to carry on. And for that, many people in the world, thank you, Bill. A final question. Is there a next book? <laughs> uh, there is. Um, uh, I'm uh, halfway through writing it. The, the title of my next book is Freezing Order. And, um, uh, uh, and it's all about the, um, uh, the efforts that we've gone through over the last decade of following the money and freezing that money uh, of the, connected to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky and all the ways in which we fought with the Russians and they fought back. And it's gonna be as dramatic and, and hair-raising as the first book. So I know I will look forward to picking it up the moment I can. And I know that our listeners and many people around the world wish you all the very best and courage and safety all goes together. Uh, thank you, Bill, for appearing on this podcast with us. And to our listeners, I will simply ask you to, uh, you know, keep listening, keep talking to me. Uh, you know, if you have ideas for uh, speakers, change makers, do send them on to us because this is an easy way of getting substantive information from the people who are the change makers. Thank you very much. Thank you.